This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Many listeners probably use LinkedIn. That's the social media website aimed at connecting employers with employees. My guest today, Janja Komjenovic, researches the ways in which LinkedIn is shaped by and shaping higher education. So university pages now is a combination of what is managed by an institution and the platform. And in a way, it is standardizing competition in the higher education sector. Yanya argues that LinkedIn furthers the employability mandate in universities. Universities turned into the labor market institutions. And this goes beyond um, adapting their curriculums for to provide knowledge or skills that is needed at the labor market. This is also about strategic changes and structural changes of universities to then make sure that their graduates get jobs. Janja Komjenovic is a lecturer of higher education at Lancaster University. In today's show, we discuss her new article, LinkedIn, Platforming Labor, and the New Employability Mandate for Universities, which was published in Globalization, Societies, and Education. Janja Komjenovic, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me, Will. So you have over 500 connections on LinkedIn and over 1,000 followers. I I actually went online and looked you up a couple days ago. Um, Can you tell me when you first decided to join LinkedIn and why? So I suppose I joined rather early on. That is in the mid-2000s. My main reason was curiosity, I would say. So I was interested in what these new platforms that appeared at that time were offering. Um, And I was also a part of international organizations and European higher education policy making. So it was a good way of me keeping in touch and track of people that I worked with um, while people move or change their email addresses or jobs. Um, I could still stay in touch through these kind of platforms. So I like that aspect of it. Um, I must admit, I wasn't really putting too much attention on it. I just kept an eye on it, although I was obviously experiencing how it was changing in time. Um, so it was just a yeah, curiosity and pragmatics, I would say. I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn as well, but I, I think of LinkedIn as just something that clogs up my inbox. I get all these emails from LinkedIn about things I don't even really care about. Yes, I get that comment a lot, but then it's also quite interesting that you still stay on it. <laughs> uh, so, so that is also an interesting um, sort of characteristic of it that... Uh, People still like to hang in there just in case, you know, just in case it's important. Um, And that is also the thing with uh, uh, digital platforms that we now experience, uh, that there is this business model where they really try to get as many people and as much data as soon as possible and then figure out how to deal with them later on or monetize them later on. So I also write a lot about uh, experimentation as a key process uh, that is part of platformization in general. So basically, it's an open future for the companies that own and manage these platforms as well as for the users, because you sort of never know what, uh, what kind of possibilities they will offer and what kind of consequences they will have. 
So it's also quite different for different people in different sectors. Some have very big use of it, particularly in IT, finance and management sectors. People actually get job offers a few times a day, while in other sectors or countries they don't. So, you know, it's a very diverse, uh, uneven kind of uh, um, animal that we see here. Yeah, and I think I continue staying on LinkedIn in hopes that I will be somehow headhunted for some amazing job. But of course, that never ends up happening. But before we get into the experimentation that platforms like LinkedIn use and the business model of a platform like LinkedIn, can you just explain to listeners what is LinkedIn? Yeah. So in its most simplest, I could say that it is a social media site, uh, a professional networking site. However, it is also many things at the same time. So it is a professional social networking opportunity for individuals, for individual people that want to keep in touch and share their updates about what they do, where they work, where they move. Uh, but it is also a marketplace for the global labor market, for companies and other organizations. So companies and employers can look and search for workers uh, and labor. Um, it is also a place where many actors promote and brand themselves or their products. So it offers exposure uh, like other websites or, or social media platforms here. It is also a data extraction and analytics actor and part of the big data global governance. And it's also a subsidiary of Microsoft. So it's a data engine for Microsoft's products and new complementary service. And it is all this at once. And this is also a characteristic of digital media platforms that writers write about in platform studies, that it is uh, a platform is a multi-sided um, market coordinating infrastructure and you can then see how it's actually bringing together more than two actors um, uh, people devices and so on so is it easy to just differentiate who are the consumers and who are the producers on linkedin well i quite like the notion of uh, the prosumer coined by ritzer so people that use these platforms are both at once, meaning that uh, while they are using uh, social media platforms, they leave the digital traces and enormous amounts of data. So they are at the same time producing it. And an important notion here is uh, network effects. So this means that the more that people use it and the more people use it in numbers, the more it's useful to them. So it's like a snowball effect. The more they use it and the more people use it, the, the better use they have. Um, that's why uh, they, these platforms have monopoly tendencies. Uh, it makes sense. Scale matters. If they are bigger, the better they are for their users as well. And um, the richer services they are able uh, to provide as well as more finest and better serving algorithms behind the data production and manipulation. So what are some of the monopoly tendencies of LinkedIn? So, I mean, LinkedIn has a very um, optimistic ambition. It says that actually they want to bring together all of the workers and potential workers in the world, all of the employers in the world, all of the universities and training institutions, and all of the possible skills out there, and then uh, offer the services of best matching, etc. So it's a very, very um, optimistic 
ambition, I would say. Obviously, they are not there yet, but they do have um, a growing number of users and services. So obviously, the more people they have and the more employers and skills in universities, the better they can do the matching. So apparently, the latest number is now half a billion users. Uh, that's just individual users, but there are also uh, institutional users like universities and employers. So universities, it's apparently about 25,000 uh, universities uh, have institutional profiles. 25,000? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Another thing to say about LinkedIn is that um, it is, well, in comparison to other social media, it is still a networking site and it offers a collaborative production of content. So it is uh, engaged in Web 2.0 and you can see it as a social media. But it's also different in the sense that it's found its niche. It's very much focused on professional networking since the beginning. All right. And also what is interesting about it is that it focused specifically on the higher education sector in its strategy. So that was since about 2012 onwards. So it targeted students and student um, and services for students. So students are its fastest growing demographic for a few years now. And it targeted universities as institutions. So it established a flagship product called University Pages. And for most universities, this was established automatically, actually. It's not that universities would go and create their profiles, but LinkedIn did this for them. Not for everybody, but for, for quite some number. And if universities that, that this wasn't done automatically for them wanted their uh, university page, they could get in touch with LinkedIn and they would do it for them. And at that time, at the beginning, universities could still um, uh, create their own company page in their role as employers. So they had two sort of pages. One they created themselves and acted as an employer, and the other was their university page as, as an institution. In 2017, uh, these two pages merged. Um, and then some services are still free for universities. And since this merger, um, they also now have to pay for some additional extra services in the in the sense of subscription. Now, what is also uh, interesting with university pages is that it's not a digital profile controlled completely by its owner, the university, but it's um, partly managed by the university as they can post content and description about themselves and it's partly managed by LinkedIn's algorithms. So the algorithms produce the statistics about the graduates, where they work, uh, how many of them work in particular sectors, how quickly they find jobs. Uh, most, uh, well, what is also now growing is the information about salaries, etc. And this is then not managed and manipulated by universities but but by LinkedIn itself so university pages now is a um, combination of what is managed by an institution and the platform and in a way it is standardizing competition in the higher education sector and a particular kind of competition and these metrics to evaluate where graduates of a particular university end up going are based on the user individual user profiles of students 
on LinkedIn? Is that how they get the, this data? Yes, exactly. So LinkedIn can only use the data from their uh, own profiles. That's why it's very important for them that they have as many users as they can. And when I said before that they were particularly targeting um, the higher education sector, this was with particular services, but also quite actively. So LinkedIn staff would visit physically universities around the world asking them how they're happy with the service, what else they could do, forming these sort of relationships. Um, so quite interestingly, there is the whole series of motivation of um, motivating universities to then teach students how to best use um, LinkedIn and how to best create their profiles. Like as part of career services? It's part of career services. At, at some universities, it is also part of um, modules. Some universities have um, career or employability modules in their curriculums. So students are actually taught as part of their curriculums how to how to create uh, that sort of digital profiles and how to use them. It's called a personal brand. Uh, so, you know, you have uh, the idea is that you keep yourself updated, interesting, use particular kind of words that are most popular in particular sectors or contexts, etc. It seems as if LinkedIn is beginning to define what education is and is for. And, it, you know, it might actually have these effects on students who say, are choosing degrees that are perhaps less employable in the future and then maybe altering their decisions to go in other directions. I mean, is that an outcome that we're seeing here? Um, I think it's far more complicated. Um, there's no simple answer to that. LinkedIn is never saying that um, university education or degrees don't matter. But what we can see happening in parallel and consistently in time is building this sort of skills, global skills uh, marketplace. So they are very much uh, focusing on skills in sense of teaching, training, jobs, employability and personal profiles. And people can get skills in different places uh, by experience, for example. They can claim that they've learned their skills themselves. They can get them at universities, on the job uh, or with just short courses, other training institutions and so on. So what then LinkedIn here does is that it uh, provides new infrastructure of valuing this sort of skills and experiences. So it marries the network effects with the training and personal profiles of people. So the idea here is that the personal network at the beginning and now more and more algorithms are the ones that are providing new valuation of profiles and what then counts um, for uh, at, uh, in the job market, uh, what counts in the hierarchy of employers, people, skills, etc. So I think what we see happening is this sort of alternative or bigger focus uh, on, on, on skills, which is anyway part of the employability discourse in the knowledge economy more generally. So I think LinkedIn really benefits from this and feeds into it as well, since it seems that it's gotten some 
policy attention as well. Uh, for example, it featured in the latest human capital report in the World Economic Forum. Um, uh, and there are also other initiatives like in the uh, city of New York, for example, they had a project with the mayor and examples like that. How would you define this employability discourse? So um, the employability discourse is, uh, we have to understand it in the context of the wider knowledge economy uh, policy into which universities and knowledge got entangled. So the idea here is that universities are key institutions in the knowledge economy as they are uh, generating new knowledge and and well I don't want to use this term but it's often said producing <laughs> workers uh, so it's not the their role has changed that it's not just anymore about research and teaching but uh, in the sense of employability discourse they are more and more responsible for uh, employment of their graduates as well so in some parts of the world you could say that they have universities turned into the labor market institutions and this goes beyond um, adapting their curriculums for to provide knowledge or skills that is needed at the labor market this is also about strategic changes and structural changes of universities to then make sure that their um, graduates get jobs and you can trace this at different scales at the uh, international level for example this was employability was one of the aims of the Bologna process at national levels, you can see that in many countries, governments are tying uh, financing of public universities with results in terms of uh, employment statistics or quality assurance agencies. And even at institutional levels, you can see that universities are promoting themselves with uh, employment statistics or working hard, uh, basically, uh, on this new call or this new mission of theirs. Um, and it's it's grown it's grown tremendously to the extent that you can say it's now in everyday lives of universities across countries. So LinkedIn, in a sense, isn't simply just creating this employability discourse, but it's in a sense furthering it that this employ employability discourse that has existed in higher education for some time, and as you said, operating on many different levels and scales. Yes, it is it is feeding definitely from it because obviously it can provide data and statistics that is much needed uh, but it is also structuring it because it actually owns the infrastructure and the data and the knowledge behind it right i mean if it's making pages for universities with its own information and not necessarily university information they are certainly structuring and if they have an algorithm that somehow quantifies all sorts of you know in a sense resumes of all these different students that they constantly update i mean it really is shaping what it means to be a graduate in a in a way of a university yes exactly um, with the question of what the impact it has on higher education, uh, we've also I'm also involved in the other study with uh, Susan Robertson and Eva Hartman from Cambridge University and Adrian McKenzie from Lancaster. Well, uh, he has now moved to Australia actually, but but we were interested also in how actually then universities use LinkedIn in uh, not just from the promotional aspect of it. So when LinkedIn says it has twenty five thousand university pages, but we actually wanted to know okay what is happening on the ground and we did a study in Europe across European countries so we did surveying of universities and we are very grateful to the European University Association to support us in that uh, we got 84 universities answering our survey from 26 European countries and we also complemented that study with uh, digital methods so link analysis 
basically um, we are in now in the process of analyzing the data, but the first results show that universities indeed use uh, social media platforms to a very big extent. Uh, in fact, social media platforms seem to be the key um, communication device in the digital world with the, with the society. Uh, so the most external links on universities' web pages actually go to social media. Uh, so it's, it's also quite interesting in the uh, web uh, and, uh, and web page uh, architecture what social media mean. Anyway, what we found was that in general, Facebook is by far most important and all respondent universities use it a lot regardless where they come from and who they are. Next is Twitter and then YouTube uh, uh, and LinkedIn share the third place. But LinkedIn is quite popular, so about 65% of universities say that they use it regularly or very often, which is quite a lot. Around 70% suggest to students or motivate them actively to create a LinkedIn profile. 37% uh, provide regular training for students or graduates on LinkedIn usage. An additional 30% do it occasionally. So these two together mean actually that around 70% of universities teach students how to use LinkedIn and their profiles. They said that they do not do this for Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and the other social media. And in this sense, LinkedIn is specific. Uh, and it is used to quite a big extent. As we discussed before, this shows that universities in fact do act as brokers for the platform as they train and motivate students on the usage. Now, now to think of the effects also is that 92% of uh, universities think employers use LinkedIn in their recruitment process. 90% think that having a LinkedIn profile is important for graduates to find a job. And 95% think it is important that graduates acknowledge on their profile that they have graduated at their university. So at least it seems that universities believe uh, that social media and particularly LinkedIn for employability matters and that it is used um, to, a big, uh, to a big extent. So I can't really say much more from that study because uh, we are in the middle of data analysis, but there is some very exciting um, data coming out and insights that uh, we will publish uh, by the end of the year, I think. It's interesting that universities have to pay LinkedIn for certain services, but they also act, as you have found, as brokers for LinkedIn. And... So, I, I mean, I guess the question I have is, you know, what is the business model here? Where is the money flowing? Is LinkedIn profitable? I know some startups never end up making a profit, but I mean, has LinkedIn, are they, are they profitable? And if so, how do they make their money? Yes, so obviously higher education is not the uh, only sector that is, uh, or the, even the key sector, I would say, that uh, LinkedIn gets money from uh, or profits from. LinkedIn reports that it has three strands of um, uh, monetized solutions, they call it. So the first is talent solution. Here they are selling the data or data products or databases to for hiring purposes to employers. Very refined, very specific um, 
search engines that you can use um, or contact potential uh, employees and, and so on. LinkedIn job postings, job seekers, uh, uh, and also LinkedIn learning uh, service uh, is included here as well. So LinkedIn bought a company called Linda uh, fairly recently, which was an established online education company that was charging fees. So not like MOOCs that uh, in principle offers at least part uh, of the access to the content for free. Linda was charging for, for, for their education courses. So since LinkedIn bought this, it developed um, LinkedIn learning possibilities. Now, whenever a user logs in to the system, um, they are offered a tailored particular courses that would complement their digital profile. So um, it is promoted as something that would boost your profile, make it more attractive, uh, competitive in the contemporary labor market. So this counts in the talent solutions as well. And this is the highest growing uh, income stream for LinkedIn. The other two are marketing solutions. So this is um, uh, similar to what would count 90% in other social media like Twitter or Facebook. Uh, here it counts less than 20% for LinkedIn. And then premium subscriptions for individuals or um, some institutions. As we said before, this sort of experimenting with services of what kind of data products, how can they use the data uh, for different kinds of services is very much alive. Um, and it seems that this experimenting with talent solutions is, is key and fastest growing income stream. So I want to just dive into this a little bit deeper. So you're saying these marketing solutions that are 20% of the in income for LinkedIn, this would be like in a sense advertising is that correct yes it would be it would be in the sense advertising in the sense that people uh, are displayed particular uh, ads or information when they log in or would get uh, what they call sponsored in mails so messages uh, it's it's exposure and getting to the users yes and so like facebook for instance as another platform that would be where the bulk of their money comes from, right? Is advertising yes. is is essential for Facebook? Exactly. Yes. At least that's what it's reported. <laughs> and there's all sorts of privacy issues that have come out of late about Facebook and targeted advertising that might be for various political purposes. But LinkedIn, you're saying, is different. It's about this talent solution, and this is the this is eighty percent of their income comes from selling databases and job posting and this new service of Linda. Yes, so um, a lot of the services come under the title Talent Solutions, but you've, uh, the bulk of it you've, you've explained. So um, what is also uh, uh, particularly interesting is that this is highest growing um, income stream. Um, while the publicly available data sort of stopped in 2015, since in 2016, Microsoft uh, bought LinkedIn. So Microsoft bought uh, LinkedIn for $26.2 billion, and, uh, and it was the third largest acquisition in the history of tech industry. Since then, it is hard to actually see the exact um, amounts of income uh, for LinkedIn services, but it is reported in news that it keeps steadily growing, uh, particularly the talent solutions. So, so what we can also see is that Microsoft is um, experimenting how it 
can complement data from LinkedIn into its other services. So for example, one of the fairly recent service uh, in Microsoft Word software is um, so-called Resume Assistant. So basically when you write your CV, uh, you can get um, examples or ideas on what kind of uh, skills other people that apply for the same job sort of state or uh, the best wording in your CV. Uh, you can compare yourself to other job seekers in the, in the same context. So it's a service in the sense um, useful, I would say, potentially for, for users, obviously, uh, when they use Word for particular reasons. But you can see how Microsoft now is trying to learn and merge services from different sectors uh, that it actually owns um, and complement each other. Should we, as users of LinkedIn, be concerned in any way? Well, I think it's like with every other uh, digital move that we make uh, on the internet. You should be aware that everything you click or do is out there forever. Um, but if you are sensible and aware of how this is used, if you use it responsibly, I think it can also be useful. It can also offer new opportunities. So LinkedIn is uh, is different also uh, in, in one more way to other social media platforms in that it is closed. So you cannot get freely, the, da uh, the data is freely as, as with other social media. So their APIs are closed. Uh, you have to have particular permissions to download data and it's it's not as easy to get. So LinkedIn is trying, seems um, quite hard to sort of keep the privacy and ownership and managing of, of their data. Is that because they're, they're concerned about the privacy of our data or is it more that they're going to monetize these databases to whoever can purchase it? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, probably it's a bit of both. I mean, you do hear examples of what kind kind of um, firms that that are established out there actually for what kind of purposes they use LinkedIn data for. So in other words, a company could hire this this service where they could actually spy on their staff because apparently research shows that if you want to change a job, you sort of focus a bit more on your LinkedIn profile, you update it, you, you know, you make it more attractive. So this company was then actually uh, analyzing this sort of moves and reported back to employers um, what, uh, you know, about these employees that are seemingly because, uh, because of these actions planning to make a move. So LinkedIn was not happy about that. Uh, you know, it wasn't happy that these other sort of in the, all of the ways that, that, that their data are used. Now you can say, okay, it's about profits elsewhere, but, but you know, it, it can also be a moral issue. So um, what I also wanted to say is, obviously, there are a lot of uh, privacy challenges and potential threats out there, but there are also opportunities. Um, Eva Hartmann, for example, was, was uh, presenting on this in that these new digital platforms in the sense of content co-production and matching also enable potential to reduce the traditional bias that we have in recruitment processes. So, for example, in the recruitment process, you know, how you look, um, your background, the words you use and so on, all can have an impact in whether you are chosen for a job or not. Um, and this potentially, this sort of, well, if, they, if we can say that they uh, can be more objectively done, or at least in different ways, you know, you can potentially also have better opportunities for 
for more equal treatment. Um, I'm not saying that it is like that or that it will happen, but at least there's a potential. So I think there needs to be a debate around how this data is used, what are the moral limits of it, how we can manage it, and it's a political debate, even though it's owned by a private company and it has a for-profit interest. Have you ever found a job through LinkedIn? So I know I have not. Um, to be honest, I haven't even looked. But um, as I said, at the moment, it is still quite uneven across economic sectors and countries. Uh, so it is uh, quite big in particular sectors, uh, as mentioned in IT and finance and so on, but not in academia. So, however, I can see that, um, you know, LinkedIn is trying very hard to penetrate all the sectors, to penetrate all the jobs. So I, I won't say uh, it, it will not happen because you can also see more and more universities posting jobs there. They didn't in the past. Um, whether this is for administration or for academic staff, it still differs. And perhaps um, academic sector is a bit specific in that it is... Um, it, it works with it, with its own rules uh, uh, and the recruitment happens in different ways. But, but it is happening. What I also hear from some colleagues, and this is more anecdotal, uh, is that um, some universities ask their staff to create profiles in different um, social media platforms. One of them LinkedIn, but then also Academia Edu or ResearchGate and so on. Um, so it's also about, it's, it seems that it's now in, in universities, institutional interests uh, that their staff is showcased. Um, so we are moving in the academia slowly away from publisher parish into promoter parish kind of logic. And, and you know, the, the digital platforms are a big part of that. Well, Jan Jakomjanovic, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I'm going to use LinkedIn very differently, I think, from now on. Well, uh, all the best with it. Thank you, Will. Jan Jakomjanovic is a lecturer of higher education at Lancaster University. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. And original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.